you know, Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Peckerwood Brick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of, any kind of other corroborating evidence? here in Northern California. And for once, I don't really have very much to report. Um, things have been pretty uneventful. And uh, rather than take up the amount of time I, I know I have been taking lately, I'm just going to hand it off to you, Mr. Who are you again? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and U.S. history teacher at the high school level up here, level up here in Northern California. Ooh. I'm at the Lever. Uh, and oh, the uh, Lever Croc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong lever. Um, you know, I was driving with my son uh, to an appointment. Um, he's now 13. Uh, he sits in the front seat with me. We have talks. It's weird. Um, and I asked him because mm -hmm. he's also 13. So we're talking at the inflection point of having all your toys and maybe transitioning away from toys. But he takes after me a bit. So he's probably not yeah. transitioning yeah, yeah. away from toys as much. But his yeah. closet is a goddamn mess. You can't open one of the doors. So I asked him, okay. hey, yeah. I noticed that your closet needs a lot of work. Are you okay with me cleaning it while you're at your mom's so you don't have to deal with it? And I asked him this because he has trouble. He doesn't have trouble doing a task at all. He does have trouble letting go of things and saying goodbye to things. And so okay. if I do it, he doesn't have to. And it's not an executive functioning thing per se, because I'm also a pack rat um, mm -hmm. of sentimental shit. Okay. Um, so I get it. Like I It's an attachment issue. Yeah, on some levels. Okay. But he does it to the point where like, if you he has Legos. It, it's so help me God, if anybody buys him more Legos, I'm going to punch people. <laughs> Because he hasn't opened the box uh, from three years ago on one of the Legos. Uh, okay. Like, he right. just keeps shit in its package. And it's not because he's a collector, either. He just has trouble transitioning it to the next step. And therefore, transitioning okay. things out is also a problem. So I said, okay. hey, uh, do you mind if I clean your closet for you while you're at your mom's? He's like, well, yeah. I need to think on that. I said, I'll tell you what. When we park, when we arrive at our destination, I would like you to give me an answer. Just a simple yes or no. We parked. He gave me an answer. It's like, cool. I have unlocked this thing. So then I asked him on the way back, hey, 
do you mind if I open your toys that are still in the packages? Because he's got like three levels deep in front of his closet mm. of action figures that he's bought with his own money that he has never opened, that he wants to, that he wants me to bring to him at his mom's, that he wants to play with and have nearby, but he doesn't open them. And I said, can you, you know, let me know once we get home. We do. He lets me know, but he says, can you save the backboards for me? I said, that sounds great. No problem. So that's what I was doing today. It was, uh, okay. it was, it was nice, but what was really cool was, uh, at the appointment. I mean, all those things were really cool. I mean, he's in the yeah. front seat with me. That's really neat. At the appointment, he does the wingspan test, you know, see, see how far his wingspan is. It's like mm -hmm. four inches taller than he is, or like, actually, I can't do that math, but it is his wingspan is taller than he is, right? So he's got oh, slightly wow. longer arms. Okay. He's five foot six and three quarters of an inch. Okay. He is uh he is almost the height of the English teacher next door to me. So well, he's three quarters of an inch taller than I am. Yeah, so I really I really want to see you two together. Like his <laughs> giant puppy hands and giant puppy feet <laughs> next yeah. to a full-grown adult male you yeah. know well <laughs> yeah for certain values of full-grown but yes <laughs> but just it would yeah. be cool yeah so anyway that was that was kind of okay cool. it just like you know he thought about it and and he always he's very good faith about that he's like i need yeah. to think about it but like i gave him a, a time frame and he was able to decide so i spent most of my day today or yesterday, yeah. um, cleaning out closet. So it was, it was very good times. cool. Yeah. Very cool. Speaking of action figures. Yeah. I gave you a homework assignment after the show oh, last night my. or last time. And my you had God. to watch yeah. the commercials yeah. for the GI Joe oh. comic book. Oh, don't, don't give me that bullshit. Those were not ads for the comic book. Well, they, they were, were, but they we're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. They were phrased as comic book because, mm -hmm. well, we're we're gonna get all up in that shit. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Wasn't it fun so hearing bad. different voices for the characters oh, that you grew up? Bizarre ass voices. Right? Yeah. Like like Destro, Destro did not Commander sound like too. that. Yeah, Cobra yeah. Commander. Yeah. Um Cobra Commander, I'm I'm gonna say I think Cobra Commander might have been an improvement, mm. which might be heretical. I, I don't I think know. so. My Cobra Commander will always sound like Starscream. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Meaningful. Yeah. But but Destro Destro sounded more like Starscream than, than Cobra Commander in those he commercials. Did. Yeah. And uh uh and people's outfits was it were Hawk? just a little off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uniforms were were not right. Yeah. Hawk sounded bad, like yep. tweaky bad. <laughs> um <laughs> Like yeah, the voice acting was just crap. Yeah. Um, and and you know it was it was phrased as advertisements for the comic book. You mm -hmm. know, check find out in Marvel Comics. And I was like, okay, I remember the mm -hmm. Marvel Comics because mm -hmm. the thing is, the comic books were were I think aimed at a slightly older audience than the TV show was. Um, because there, there was, there was actually pretty good writing. They weren't in a lot of the, 
what it was and and i will get into it um okay because that is a significant chunk of this episode okay they weren't aimed at a slightly younger or a slightly older audience but they mm. were written for a slightly older, older audience and i think that's a okay. distinction worth making okay but okay what you saw were yeah. gi joe and to some extent transformers does this too there's there's uh transformers commercials for the comic books too mm-hmm G.I. Joe and Transformers are likely the most infomercially versions of 30-minute cartoons, Um, although there's others that are really close to it, He-Man being uh, amongst Mm. them, Mask Mm. being another. Mm. Um, The characters, the vehicles, the accessories, the animals, the play sets, they all derived from their appearance on very colorful and varied cartoons, which were initially 30-second spots on TV shows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, originally... The G.I. Joe action figure was a 12-inch toy for kids. And it yep. dwindled in sales through the 1970s and was gone from shelves by the 1980s. And I suspect this is because the Vietnam War had a lot to do with that. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. However, in 1978, a new kind of action figure had come along and it was a lot smaller. In fact, it was a lot more plastic, too. Uh mm. Micronauts. Oh, okay. Also Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to... Star Wars was where my head immediately went yeah. from Kenner. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they were both sold at the three and three quarters inch size, largely because the head of Kenner, his fist plus his thumb on a table measured three and three quarters inches. Okay, I suddenly want to go get a ruler because... I feel like he had midget hands. I'm just like, I'm looking at my own hand. And, right. Like, do I you actually feel like Charlie Sheen in, in, like, in Ferris Bueller's? Like, yeah. Like, look at your thumb. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. Okay. So the head of Hasbro and the head of Marvel were both taking a leak at a charity event. And <laughs> they got to talking. <laughs> this is all true. Oh, how the sausage is made. Okay. Yeah, oh, or shown. Uh, uh, yeah, well. Actually, that's only remember. Second... Remember, if it's more than if it's more than three times you're playing with it. Speaking of getting a ruler, yeah, uh, <laughs> this actually my second favorite <laughs> urinal story. Um, my favorite being uh, with Winston Churchill, um, where he and I forget who from the other party, yeah, uh, were in the men's lavatory, um, and they were arguing opposite sides the whole day. And yeah. uh, they ended up next to each other at the men's lavatory in front of urinals. And uh, one of them says, finally, a platform we can both stand on. <laughs> Which is pretty uh, good. Yeah, that's pretty, that's, yeah. yeah. yeah but nice. this is my second favorite story. Okay, second favorite one. All right. Um, so according to Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief yeah. of the Marvel Comics at the time, yep. he said, quote, the president or CEO of Hasbro was at a charity event at that Marvel's president was also at. They ended up in the men's room, standing next to each other, peeing, and I think that's how they met. They were talking about each other's respective businesses, and it came up that Hasbro wanted to reactivate the trademark on G.I. Joe, but they were trying to come up with a new approach. Marvel's guy was like, we have the best creative people in the world. Let me bring in this editor-in-chief of mine, and we'll fix it for you. Now, that's Jim Shooter telling the story. Yeah, well, yeah. And I don't think they were peeing that whole time. They were probably washing their hands and talking. Yeah, they were yeah, yeah. Now, Hasbro was thirsty for those action figure dollars. And Bob Pruprish, 
uh, Hasbro executive figured out that advertisement didn't have to be a TV commercial that would only last a few seconds. It could be a whole ass comic book because comic books were protected by the First Amendment. And since you couldn't put regulations on how to advertise for publication like you could for a toy, it was. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Wow. Now, in an interview. Yeah. How shitty. Right. Okay. In an interview back in the halcyon days of 2010, Jim Shooter said this. So take this with the salt lick that it probably deserves. um, That he was in a meeting that was set up at that urinal. So they're peeing. They set up that meeting. He's one of the head guys in that meeting. Um, They're all in a boardroom now. And uh, the Hasbro execs have just uh, just have G.I. Joe, a real American hero. That's pretty much all they've got that that G.I. Joe, a real American hero. It kind of rhymes. That's a good cadence to it. But that's about it. They wanted to make the toys smaller and they wanted to make lots of different ones. That's about it. You know, they're like, look, we get six, 12, you know, 12 action figures. They're this size. We can mass produce them. Uh, Shooter claimed that it was his idea to make G.I. Joe the code name for the whole outfit. Quote, they can't be soldiers. It has to be anti-terrorist because war won't go. Now, remember, this is like 1982. So, yeah. Okay. Maybe it's like a secret squad of the best soldiers and sailors and airmen. They're all this secret group and they fight terrorists and have a special technology. That's all his recollection anyway. Okay. Now this meant that Hasbro, in an effort to make toys, could get Marvel on board for a comic book line and Marvel would get to design the characters that Hasbro would sell. And then Hasbro could make a half hour long animated commercial in the form of a cartoon that would then be referential to the comic book. That's Loosely. how you get around it all. Okay. So those comic or those those commercials that I made you watch. Yeah. They were kind of test marketing. Okay. Um, they weren't the original cartoons, obviously, but mm-hmm. they were the first cartoons, if you will. Yeah. Shooter then shifted most of the credit over to Larry Hama in his interview. Mm-hmm. Now, Larry Hama was born just after World War II in New York. Uh, he went to an art focused high school in Manhattan. And was even taught by former comic comic book ah, comic book artist Bernard Kriegstein, um, who'd written one of the first comic book stories about the Holocaust for EC Comics called Master Race. Oh wow! It's right. considered like one of them groundbreaking type comics. Okay, like it's only like an eight page or two. Like it's a short one, but it it was important. Okay. I read it for this. Anyway, Hama joins the military after his high school years, and he serves in Vietnam from 1969 to 1971, which I think we can all agree was a terrible time to have to serve. Yeah. When he got back into the U.S., he became more active in the Asian American community in New York. Uh, he took over for Gil Kane on the Iron Man, Iron Fist character after the premiere of Iron Fist mm-hmm. um, for Marvel Comics in 1974. He was a journeyman who freelanced for a bunch of different groups, including a stint as editor for Wonder Woman in 1978 for DC, and eventually he joined Marvel in 1980 as an editor. Now, Larry Hama had been toying with the idea for a spinoff for Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but that never materialized. So Jim Shooter gave the G.I. Joe project to Hama after a meeting when Shooter brought Larry Hama, Archie Goodwin, and Tom DeFalco to the meeting with the Hasbro bigwigs. Now, these are okay. really three of some of the most important names in comic book history now. Oh, yeah. 
but you know Archie Goodwin is responsible for uh Power Man. Mm-hmm. Uh Tom DeFalco, I mean Jesus Christ. Uh and so Larry Hama seemed to be the the one that everyone agrees had the most creative input. Hasbro still, according to Jim Shooter at least, didn't know the gold mine that they had. They had designed 10 distinctive 3 and 3 quarter inch heroes along with a few vehicles and Hama took it and ran with it. Now, if Archie Goodwin does sound familiar, like I said, he was the original writer for the Iron Man series, as mm-hmm. well as the creator of Luke Cage, Power Man. Yeah. Tom DeFalco was the one behind Spidey's symbiote suit and the creator of Silver Sable. Okay. Now, Hasbro agreed to produce and pay for what they called the animated commercials uh, for one year that would back the comic, which was really a clever way to get around regulation that was kind of on its way out anyway. Mm-hmm. So they're making all these plans. So they're advertising for the comic. They're definitely advertising for the comic. Mm-hmm. The comic is advertising for the for the toys. Yeah, and this is seventy eight. No, this is uh by this point it's eighty two. Eighty two. They're developing okay. this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, if you recall the toys, the back of the packaging had a short dossier on each character. Oh yeah. Right. Vividly, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Larry Hama said that Marvel and he himself specifically came up with that idea, largely because nobody wanted to, quote, touch it with a 10 foot pole, <laughs> which I'm like, how? <laughs> like, how? I remember reading those for what felt like hours. Oh, obsessively. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, Larry oh. Hama was really the brains behind the narrative structure, too. Hasbro seemed to just kind of be adrift on that as well. Larry Hama recalled asking who the G.I. Joes were going to fight, to which Hasbro responded, huh? What? (laughs) Um, And apparently Hama credits Archie Goodwin with the actual identity of the bad guys. Quote, we'll have some sort of semi-fascistic paramilitary organization and we'll call them Cobra or something. They basically spitballed the cartoon's protagonist and antagonist into existence. Doesn't okay, that piss you see, off? Like it see, pisses me off that it's so not thought out. Like it's like I don't know. We'll like we'll, we'll call we'll Cobra call or destroy, some shit. but like we'll yeah. take off the Y. Well, I mean, you okay. Know. Look, like seriously, look at the names. Like, come on. I know. I know. Does it the... really shock you? I mean, yes. <laughs> There's such a mythos to it. Like it shouldn't be that accidental. Well, or okay, like no, but, but okay. But here's the deal. Here's this is what I'm, I'm mm-hmm. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that. It's it's the fact that okay we we have these you know these character names that are that are just Tomax and Zaymot. I mean come on, um you know we we have we have you, you know we, they've they've spitballed all this stuff as you say they've spitballed all this stuff into existence, and then and then Larry Hama mm-hmm. takes all of the stuff that they've spitballed into existence, and then he writes the GI Joe comics. Mm-hmm. Which, which, what I'm pissed off about is the extent to which it was blatantly 110% rooted in we're going to figure out a way to get around, <laughs> to get around what skimpy, you know, broadcast regulations there are in order to advertise this shit. You know, it's, it's like the, See, the, the, to me, that just feels like they wasted effort. If they'd just been a little more patient, they would have been able to get around it anyway. Well, but yeah, the thing is mm-hmm. what, what Larry Hama 
created with all of that Mm -hmm. to me just proves that if you're a good enough writer, you could take shit and make something good out of it. You can in fact, polish a turd. Sure. You know, and and it makes me admire Larry Hama that much more. Sure. That's my take. Okay. To me, this feels, did you ever watch that movie with John Cryer where he had a beard and then he witnessed a murder so then he shaved his beard and went and hid out in a high school. Yeah, I, it sounds okay. yeah vaguely familiar. Like yeah. he hung out with his younger cousin. His it yeah. was the movie was called Hiding Out. Um, yeah, right. There's vaguely a scene recall. where he's enrolling in the school to stay hidden, and they ask him what his name is, and he didn't think that far ahead, and so he kind of looks to his left, and he goes, "It's Max." Well, Hauser, because he saw a pot of instant coffee. Hmm. Yeah, Maxwell Hauser, Maxwell right. House. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, what it feels like. Okay, we're gonna okay. come up with like some sort of super secret and call it I don't know, Snaky Cobra. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Remo Williams? Uh, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. It just <laughs> like. It's it's Vince McMahon going to Jake Roberts going, I see Jake the snake. Okay. Like, Jesus Christ, really? Like, are <laughs> that's you that's all you got? That's 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 it. Really? Really? Yeah. Really. Yeah, so, no, I, I I mean, I'm not I don't want to discount your emotional response. I'm just right. saying of how you know, fucking stupid not... like <laughs> the origin is. It's like well, well, why I mean, is the, why is Apollo the god of the sun? Well, he's Zeus's son. You know, it's it would be yeah, like that fucking dumb. Okay, right, all right, yeah, it's a homonym, whatever. Sure. Yeah, who you call it a homo? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, why is he called Hephaestus? <laughs> well, because he's half as tall as Festus. Like you're like, god damn who it, the fuck like, is Festus? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Hama really was the brains behind the narrative structure, like I said. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and so now you've got Marvel on board, and they were coming up with more and more characters, which in turn drove more and more toys. And now all that was needed was the cartoon. Uh, the comic got started in June of 1982. Hama was at the helm, and essentially he ported over his idea for the offshoot from the Fury comic. Mm-hmm. It was, in his words, quote, an elite counter-terrorist unit like Delta, and it was led by Nick Fury's son. Fury Force also had an underground secret base under a motor pool. The basic concept was very similar. So he just, you know, hey, I've got yeah, well, it's you know, you know I, I I've got this idea for an Irish bard. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'll play him in this game. I was gonna play him in that game, but instead we yeah. needed a cleric. So now I've got an Irish cleric, you know. So, yeah, you know, Father yeah. O oh, for Christ's sake, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and and now i know how i'm going to introduce you and as how i'm gonna how i'm gonna tuckerize you in a in in, in a D game i'm really yes. <laughs> father oh for christ's sake father so in, oh for yeah christ's sake yep there you go father Ofer. yeah so cobra commander had his hood uh he had yeah. baroness at his right hand and he had a fanatic army of cobra agents uh, Larry Hama wove together a pretty good first issue, giving good face time to each character, making sure that their code names were folded into the dialogue and giving good action overall. He had, frankly, what I dream of. Um, like, 
you know, that kind of creative like Genesis. Yeah. Now I'm trying to remember was, was that the, was that the issue where they, the Cobra got a hold of a, of a bear bomber and they, they had a nuke trying to remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I've read through a bunch, so they all kind of, I mean, yeah, doing longevity research. Yeah. Yeah. They all, they all bleed together after a while, but yeah. Now Hasbro gave him the look of the character and their specialty. And literally that was it. Like, so they'd be like, here's what this guy looks like. He's good at diffusing bombs. And Hama created everything around that. He got to design personality, code name, birthplace, psych profiles, everything. That's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So basically he he got to do professionally World what World. role playing role playing gamers like uh-huh. wish they could do and get paid for. Like I'm uh-huh. just gonna create character after character after character after character. Yeah. And relationships Fuck. and oh, man, yeah, how do you so damn cool. dude? All right. I know he saw his job as a pretty complex one, which it was Yeah, the information that he put into the comic would then be information that Hasbro folks would use to sell the toys. Um, and as a result, Larry Hama said, quote, it has to read on two levels. A 10 year old kid has to be able to read it and think it's absolutely straight. And an adult reads it and should chuckle. There should be a joke in there for the adults one of the factors that helped sell G.I. Joe figures was that the salesmen who sold it to retailers used the dossiers as a selling point. They could read the dossiers to an adult buyer in a polyester suit, and they'd get a rise and understand what it was all about, end quote. So that's what I mean. Like, it was wow. for this, but yeah. into that. Oh, so oh, yeah. It's that prismatic effect that I love that, that yeah. I think Caesar wrote with. In fact, the comic far outlasted the cartoon, by the way. And uh, But I'm not here to talk about the comic. I've mostly been using that to bring you up to speed on the cartoon. While yeah. the comic and the cartoon shared a lot of broad strokes, Marvel and Hama were left largely alone by Hasbro to do their own thing. Essentially, they'd consult once in a while to give Marvel the plan for the next year's characters to start featuring them. And, but that was about it. And they had no real editorial control over the comic, which is why the comics were much darker, much more intricate, and much more overarching with their plots than the G.I. Joe cartoon was. Mm-hmm. But as this is about the G.I. Joe cartoon, the G.I. Joe cartoon was quite something. It was initially used to advertise the comic. But Hasbro knew that this was merely the first step. This was how you get exposure for when they did advertise for the toys. So it was a bunch of cartoon advertisements advertising characters in a comic book. Roughly 30-second commercials, as you watched. Yeah. Each one had its own original song. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, oh my God. But did you also recognize parts of the songs? Like, you're like, oh, oh shit, well, they clipped oh, it yeah. together. Oh, oh right? yeah. Each commercial absolutely featured cool vehicles and cool characters, all in the guise of comics. What's next? Find out in Marvel Comics, right? Mm-hmm. And what's cool with these cartoons, and you can see their use as storyboards for the cartoon episodes, which would come in due time. Because there are set pieces that you see in these, these cartoon commercials, and they absolutely get used in later episodes. Okay, you yeah. probably recognize that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, as I'd said earlier, and I left myself a note here, pause to make sure Ed has seen these. Uh, As I'd said earlier, because of Fowler's and Reagan's efforts, the ability for a single company to make cartoons that were basically long-form versions of the commercials that we stopped to watch 
or that I made you watch, uh, they were now met with a lot less resistance. So in 1984, mm -hmm. that regulation all but dissolved. So if they'd just been a little patient. Um, originally, G.I. Joe's cartoon was a joint venture between Sunbow and Marvel, and it was a five-episode miniseries that started on September 12th, 1983. This, okay. is, this is about a year after the toy line has already come out, mm -hmm. and about 15 months after the comics had come out. So not only do you have plausible deniability about the marketing, you have a yeah. group of kids who've read the comic. Yeah. So shit, there's a cartoon okay. about it. And yeah. you've got a group of kids who maybe have some of the toys. Shit, there's a cartoon about that. Like, and mm. remember the original toys, their arms did not swivel. No. You had the up and down of the elbows and you had the articulation of the shoulders, but you did not have the, rotation. the twist rotation. Right. That was a big deal. That it was. Because I remember Breaker second or only third. went up or down. Yeah, it was yeah. third. It was third, third generation. Third gen. Yeah. So Hasbro isn't directly tied to the cartoon and it's not being used by them directly to sell toys to children. And it's an after school cartoon anyway. And it was syndicated everywhere. So technically they could show air, show it wherever and whenever they wanted. But what group of consumers were home alone with the television between 2.30 and 5 p.m.? That would be you and me. Yes. Yeah. It was an intensely militaristic cartoon, right? It starts with the Sky Strikers flying in formation. You see a bevy of camouflaged individuals carrying rifles and charging forward in the original introduction mm -hmm. to G.I. Joe. Yep. Um, all the explosions a young kid could want. Tanks. A real American hero. There's Jeeps galore. Uh, and then you see Cobra on the right side of the screen. Not the left, not the center, the right. Mm. This is important because okay. bad guys come in from the right side. I mean in cinematography. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Nice. And the guy singing the original song says, it's G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro fighting to save the day. He never gives up. He's always there fighting for freedom over land and air. Okay. Yeah. So that's the original. Now, later it changes to Cobra the Enemy. Mm -hmm. But at first it's Cobra and Destro, which I think is, is fun. Um, G.I. Joe, a real American hero, G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose to defend human freedom against Cobra a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. And so on and so on. Yeah. And like I said, once we get to the full series, changes to Cobra the Enemy, not Cobra and Destro. And as will the rest of the intro's visuals, because new toys gotta sell. Right? Yeah. So it ceases to be just Sky Strikers and the tanks. Then it becomes the Awe Strikers. And it becomes like the... um. Oh shit, I forget what those were called, but the forward facing wings. And you have different, yeah. you know, all kinds of different toys. And it ends, the intro ends with a dozen characters raising victorious arms in front of an enormous patent style American flag. Yeah. Remember when I said that Reaganism caused Reaganism to fight against Reaganism in the most Reaganistic possible way? Yeah. Well, Without the removal of all sorts of regulations by the FCC under Reagan's appointee, Mark Fowler, this could not have happened. And without the massive tax cuts at the beginning of his presidency for the rich and the cutting of social services, including several after-school programs, 
and an after uh, and an overall better tax base that would have allowed more people to remain single family single income families this would not have hit as hard as it did and without reagan's desire to redeem the pain that he felt from his first divorce signing landmark legislation into being as governor for, before making it harder for most families to afford to live off of one income it's entirely possible that the divorce wave wouldn't have co- would have come later than it did and then we get to the cartoon okay so gi joe is hyper militarized right they fight with massive funding from the government toward their uh toward its own arsenal yeah, right. they you, are back you do eventually have to wonder, like, where exactly is all this funding coming from? Well, they like, have episodes like, that talk about it, too. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> um, and they're fighting against an unfettered authoritarian capitalist uh, in, in the guise of Cobra Commander and Destro as a centerpiece to the whole show. Mm. Now, in order to prove that this is Reaganism versus Reaganism, the militarism versus hypercapitalism we got to mm-hmm. unpack some of the aspects of the show so first of all you have violence that's not really violent ultimately there was still enough regulation to sanitize the violence larry hama didn't like this by the way um when he was writing the comic he specifically aimed to unglorify war he said mm-hmm. quote i wanted to have real deaths in gi joe mm-hmm. okay um, but unfortunately, comics weren't in charge of the cartoons, and there was enough pressure to uh, still to show that for every plane that was shot down, the pilot would get to safety. Mm-hmm. Right? How often yeah. did you and I watch it and go, oh, "Okay, he parachuted to safety" every yeah. single time? In fact, I only saw one person wounded mm-hmm. by a laser blast. Yeah. Um, Every laser that was fired, it missed a person, no matter how close it got to them. So you have very sanitized violence. And the the lasers were nicely color-coded for us. Red was for G.I. Joe. Blue was for Cobra. Yep. Um, And after all, these kids are alone and watching TV. So who knows what they could pick up from G.I. Joe. So Yeah. And the characters are largely sexless, despite the overwhelming majority of them being men. By and large, there's a little chatter here and there in the first season about crushes and beauty and such like that, but it's nearly nil. Yeah. There's there's three pseudo relationships that I could find, but nothing that's overtly kissy kissy. Mm-hmm. You get the will they won't they stage a couple of times with each couple, Flint and Lady J, yep. Scarlet and Duke. Yeah. And uh then you know, but it fizzles after a line or two. Like, yeah. oh, I wanted to say goodbye to you. Okay, well, thanks. Uh, is there anything else? No, of course not. All right. Mm -hmm. I'll see you when I get back, Lady J. But then other times, you know, like she's like, who's going to take me to dinner? And then Alpine and Bazooka are like, oh, we will. And Flint says, and you'll be on KP for a month. Come on, Lady J. She's like, Mm -hmm. you sure know how to treat a Lady Flint. And then that's it. Like, it's it's just that kind of back and forth. And then, of course, there's Shipwreck, who is doing his damnedest to try to get a date with Cover Girl or Scarlet or Lady J. Uh, but anybody. Yeah, but it's also largely for laughs. Like, we know mm-hmm. that he's not going to get there. Um, Now, you do have cosmetic diversity in that there's no real dress code in G.I. Joe. In fact, that's one of the jokes yeah. uh, later made is that G.I. Joe, the, the least restrictive dress code of all the military forces. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah. But it's absolutely tied to toys, right? 
um, you know, selling the the colorful toys, the different outfits, yeah. you know, hey, yeah. this guy has a hat, this guy doesn't, this guy has a different gun, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Scarlet has a, a crossbow. But there's no real outward sign of conformity. Uh, and yet there's a near lockstep set of virtues on the side of the Joes. And Cobra outwardly is almost all the same, blue and black with a red insignia to mostly mimic Cobra Commander with just a few characters who differ from the norm. Mm-hmm. The G.I. Joe episodes can be broken down into a few categories themselves, with the larger thread being what it just says in the intro. Cobra is always trying to take over the world. Most of the time it's through sci-fi means. The next highest category is via supernatural means. And then there's kind of standard espionage and then the harebrained schemes of a mundane sort. Yeah. So the very first one uh, is a five-part miniseries uh, in the first week of school, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, in 1983 and then they did another one in 1984 and in the 83 one we have duke scarlet snake eyes stalker cover girl those are our main characters right yeah cobra is largely staffed by minions but there is cobra commander destro and baroness um those are your main baddies and baroness and destro do have the most romantic relationship on screen there's Mm -hmm. actual kisses yeah um but they're bad guys uh the mass device because they're bad guys yeah in many ways yeah. Uh, the mass device is the main plot point, and it's where Cobra is using it to steal satellites and somehow teleport forces to other places. It's never really clear, but it's a lot of go to the place and get the thing before the other side does kind of quest. Yeah. Lots of red and blue lasers. Duke gets captured. There's mind control. Eventually, the Joes get to Cobra Mountain in time to stop the mass device. I think they made their own mass device. And eventually they stop uh, They stop it from destroying the Earth's core, which was apparently a thing that they were thinking to do. Okay, yeah. In 1984, there's another, and, and this is uh, a, a miniseries that starts off the actual full season. Okay, so okay. now they're like, okay, we're going to do another miniseries, but that'll just be the first five episodes. And then we'll go, it's like the continuing adventures of G.I. Joe. Okay. So in 84, Cobra's making something called the Weather Dominator, which is essentially another go to the place and get the thing Mm -hmm. five-part series after Cobra attacks Washington, D.C., and and then the Joes split it into three parts, and then you got to go and stop them from getting it or get it. And we get introduced to a lot more characters in a more in-depth way. We get Spirit, Doc, Torpedo, Clutch, Rock and Roll, Lady Jane, Snow, or Lady J., Snow Job, Gung Ho, Flint, Roadblock, Shipwreck, Zartan, Storm Shadow, and Firefly. Okay. Now, this is similar Damn. stuff, by and large. Yeah. But I would note that both of these hinge on some level of control of satellites to force the world to do their bidding in 1983 to 1984. Okay. Because MX Missiles, Star Wars, SDI Initiative. Mm-hmm. All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, you may remember that Lawrence Livermore Labs in 1975 had begun theorizing and working on developing an X-ray laser to uh, a field, an X-ray laser field, to shoot down multiple missiles at once. And by February of 1981, the idea that many X-rays could hit multiple ICBMs launched at America um, comes to the fore. And theoretically, a single nuclear satellite in orbit could take out enough that in the event of a nuclear war with all the missiles being launched, U.S. casualties would be reduced to only 30 million. 
only put another, yeah put another way 15 times the amount of latchkey kits there you go and that's <laughs> there you go yeah that's somehow good i i there's a a few groups that i follow on social media one of them is americans will do anything to avoid using the metric system <laughs> well we will it's, right. it's a historically proven fact yeah. that yeah and somebody's response to it was come to within three blue whales of me and say that <laughs> so, nice i yeah. like it yeah so anyway, it's somehow good that we'll only lose $30 million. And anyway, that meant that the U.S. could launch a first strike and not have to worry about as much of a counter-strike. Great. Yeah. Now, in February of 1981, that very argument was presented to Congress in an ask for funding from Edward Teller and Lowell Wood, the current record holder on utility patents, interestingly enough. Um Teller and Wood also spoke with the new president of the United States about the financial needs in order to realize such a possibility. The name of this projected idea, which was a large number of X-ray laser devices in orbit that would each hold about 50 X-ray laser devices, providing a laser shield from orbit against a Soviet launch, was... SDI? Uh-huh. Okay. The Space Defense, Defense Initiative. Initiative. Or Strategic Headed. Defense Initiative, yeah. And it was colloquially referred to as Star Wars. That's right. Now imagine if you had a president who had a background in show business who didn't really understand much, but certainly liked slogans. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Now Teller had been a contributing scientist in the Manhattan Project, and he had actually watched the Trinity test which was against orders. <laughs> he was told with the rest of the scientists to lay down face down on the ground, facing away from the test. He actually made sure he saw it. Um, his report on it was kind of interesting. It's just, you know, it, it is what you'd expect. It was really fucking bright. Um, mm -hmm. But he was also one of the first scientists to sound any kind of alert about global climate change as being due to our burning of fossil fuels. Uh, he went on to write an editorial in the newspapers blaming a heart attack that he had uh, after. So you remember Three Mile Island, right? Yeah. Um, well, Three Mile Island uh, had a partial meltdown. It was nuclear partial meltdown. I want to say yeah. in like Pennsylvania or or New Jersey. I thought it was upstate New York. Oh, you're right. Three Mile Island. Duh. Yeah. Um, sorry. Those areas all kind of run together. Yeah. Well. Um, so uh, he blamed he had a heart attack right after that happened. He blamed it on Jane Fonda. Um, come again, because and it wasn't her aerobics tape. So, no, not because he came again. Um, it was because she she had played uh, a role in the film, The China Syndrome, which had just come out like two weeks before Three Mile Island happened. OK. And The China Syndrome was about a nuclear meltdown at an American plant. Okay. And it was just like too much of like, holy shit, this is a little weird that it's this close to being true. Yeah. So he's kind of the perfect guy to bring fantastical tech to an actor who charmed his way into the presidency. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, did it land. Reagan loved it. In March of 1983, Ronald Reagan announced the strategic defense initiative in a 30 minute speech saying, quote, I call upon the scientific community in this country, 
those who gave us nuclear weapons to turn their great talents to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering those nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. Okay, no, wait, that's not what you're trying to do. Yeah, he's really saying, give me space lasers to shoot down nuclear ICBMs. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 looking for a way so that we can hit them with nukes without them hitting us. Right. That's not rendering them obsolete. That's world peace. That's, okay, well, you know, <laughs> eat a Pop-Tart in a commie-free world. Like, you know... Right. <laughs> Thank you to Berkeley Breathed, by the way, for that for that yeah. particular line. But like, really? Oh my god. Yeah. And so the SDI, the Star Wars program that that actor turned governor turned president, uh largely relied on was the idea of orbiting satellites with the capabilities to do fantastical things, right? Orbiting satellites like, yeah. that did fantastical mm. things. Mm-hmm. So it later came out that Teller and Wood vastly oversold it to the old man in the Oval Office, getting lots of funds that didn't really do anything. But in September 83, and again in 84, the SDI put satellites and weaponized lasers in everyone's mind. Okay, yeah. Okay, and you'll recall that in August of 85, the movie Real Genius also hit the theaters, which centered around science geniuses building and perfecting a space laser that could kill individual people at will. Yep. So let's go back to the mass device, which is right. fantastical satellite tech. And then let's go back to the weather dominator, which is fantastical satellite tech. Yep. So it's no wonder that the first two miniseries that G.I. Joe involved or that G.I. Joe had were involving satellite launches, takeovers, and the ability to control and teleport shit from space. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, yeah. Once September of 85 rolled around, G.I. Joe was ready for more than just a miniseries. And once again, we're in space. It's this time it's Space Station Delta, which sounds cool. Okay. And Cobra Commander has come up with the plan of a pyramid of darkness. Okay. This is a scheme that's designed to deprive the world of electricity, which starts with the Dreadnoughts capturing Space, space Station Delta. And they do it with like these like ferocious furries. Which, like, when you blow a whistle, they grow into, like, gray minotaur-type creatures that can oh, also be technicians okay. and use guns. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, the Dreadnoughts hired wow. moron mercenaries. Yeah, bikers. Yeah. They're, they're a biker. They're an Australian yeah. biker gang. That's right. Which makes a lot of sense if you remember Mad Max and Road Warrior. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, so, uh, um, oh, damn it. Uh, Paul Hogan. Oh, what was it? Oh, oh, Crocodile Dundee. Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. That's not for another couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah. That's not till 87. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Never mind then. Um, but, uh, the Dreadnoughts capture station, space station Delta, and eventually the Joes gain their bearing, and we learn something about the Cobra underworld, which it, which has so Snake Eyes is still dressed as Snake Eyes. But he wears a wig. <laughs> and he doesn't talk, but that's okay because he's with Shipwreck, who is just totally not distinctive at all. Um, but those two get end up in the Cobra underworld, which includes an entertainment industry that bleakly sings to Cobra agents in their off hours. And and apparently there's a high degree of willingness to help animal companion G.I. Joe's on the run. Okay. 
So again, satellites, harebrained scheme to shut off electricity so that only Cobra has it, right? We're right. the only yeah, ones yeah. with this power and it's satellites yeah. that are powering us. And what stops them? Militarism. So Reaganism against fighting Reaganism. Reaganism. Okay. In the next few episodes, Cobra tries its hand at sabotage. First, simply by planting a bomb in the Worldwide Defense Center, which I think is supposed to be like a gun-based United Nations. Um, And then they, and that fails, of course, and then they get a corporation to install real nuclear rockets on top of a chain of diners throughout the United States called the Red Rocket, which, if you've ever owned a dog... (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Um... But yeah, yeah, it's it's there's a corporation that works hand in fist with Cobra Commander. It's called Extensive Enterprises, and it's run by the Crimson Guard twins, Tomax. Right, and Tomax and Zaymont. Yeah, right. Who have the dumbest power? Um, oh yeah, they're, they they're linked pain. to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not through pleasure, just through no, pain. just pain. Which, um, well, I mean, to be honest, since the cartoon is as sexless as it is, we don't really know. Good point. But, but it brings yeah. up the question to me that yeah. if the two of them are A-framing a woman, um, are they quadrupling their own pleasure? Yeah, one wonders. Yeah. One wonders. That's really the point of this. This is this is these is are the thoughts that Tomax kept us out of the really good schools. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A-framing the Baroness, because you know she'd be down for that. And um, somebody has drawn... Oh, I guarantee you they've got Tomax and Zamot spit roasting the hell out of her. Yeah. Um, Not that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'm just curious. Like, is it like, (laughs) does it stack or is it like a multiplier? Like, I mean, is this, is this PEMDAS? Like, how are we calculating the amount of it? Like, if they both feel each other's pain, maybe are they feeling each other's ecstasy? If one of them's kind of into pain, like, does that translate to this is the shit that I want to know? Okay. Yeah. I'm very glad I don't live in your head. Um <laughs> so are most people. <laughs> but, um and and you know something struck me when I was watching those those cartoons, mm-hmm. the the advertisements for my homework. Mm-hmm. But Crimson Guard. So they got introduced in 80 They were introduced in that, in that season. Yeah, 80 84. 84. Yes. Uh, Return of the Jedi was 83. Three? Yeah. Oh. And Return nice. of the Jedi introduced right. the Emperor's personal guards who are the, right. you know, ultra yeah. elite of the stormtroopers. Right. In the, you know, swoopy looking helmets and the long right. crimson red robes. Right. And like that suddenly struck me that like, hey, wait a minute high-ranking bad guy mooks wore mm-hmm. red in the 80s. Yeah. That's a really good point. I remember reading the the dossier on the back of a Crimson Guardsman and yeah. like their minimum requirements is that they had to bench press 500 pounds. Oh wow. I and, had I had yeah. forgotten that tidbit. That's a lot of fucking weight. That's that's holy shit, man. Uh-huh. Um so That's I was like, how does training. Flint knock them out with just one <clears throat> punch while they're still masked? 
Uh, but well, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of muscle mass that's required to do that kind of thing uh, actually mm-hmm. can lead to hypertension. Oh, there you which go. could potentially give them all a glass jaw. Yeah, so, I mean, go. there's that. Like, yeah. you know, they're they're operating at such such high high diastolic. Yeah. That you yeah. know you you hit them and like they stroke out yeah. like right there. I can see um, that. Yeah. You know, could be. Vaguely. But uh, the other thing that I remember about the Crimson Guards, and mm-hmm. this was eighty eighty five. You said. Um, they were all sleeper agents. It was like they all had some kind of cover identity. Oh yes, actually, they that will come up when we talk about. Um, okay, which uh, you know the farming episode. Okay, because like, how <laughs> cold war can you get? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think about that because Baroness was doing that over and over, and she's clearly East German. Oh, she's Baroness. You yeah, know? obviously. Yeah. So and and yeah. yeah. Uh honestly, um, it's not till second season that you really start to see them exploring any of that, despite it being used as a plot device in so many first season episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about the, the espionage aspect. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it just yeah. It, it right. anyway so uh yeah extensive enterprises is a corporation run by tomax and zamot and mm-hmm. for a fee they do all kinds of bidding for cobra commander um so including the red rocket um cobra commander of course threatens to launch all of the missiles of the red rocket uh diners if yeah. the united states government doesn't turn over total control to him now i I think it's interesting. He's attacking like, us based on diners, which you don't get much more American. And yet, well, there is that nuclear weapons and they combine them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah. The, the part that immediately strikes me though, is so constitutionally, how would that even work? Like, like oh, all yeah, of yeah. these <laughs> schemes, all of these schemes are based on this idea. Like, you know, the, the 10 year olds idea that, well, you know, the president is like the King. And like, right. no, you, that's not, that's not how any of this works. Like you can't actually make a demand like that one of a Republic. Well, I don't think it becomes a legal thing at that point. Like, yeah. it, you know, it's not like there's going to be a constitutional crisis when a yeah. fascist completely takes over. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. Like, you know, they take yeah. over due to a constitutional crisis that they've created yeah. maybe. But yeah. Cobra Commander is just sidestepping that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which, by the way, G.I. Joe stormed the Capitol in 1983. Just, or not G.I. Joe, but uh, Cobra did. So, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Funny that. Although, mm. it, in all fairness, Cobra understood the importance of wearing masks. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. So, Okay. <laughs> Then in the next episode, Cobra tries to take control of the world's fuel supply, attacking and capturing the world's oil reserves. Uh, This, of course, grinds the Joes to a halt as it's clear that even a daring, highly trained special mission force whose purpose is specifically to defend human freedom against Cobra, ruthless terrorist organization that it is, uh, still runs on oil. Luckily, there's big enough sails that can be found on aircraft carriers to get the Joes to where they need to go. So many things wrong with that. Go for it. So many, like, captures the world's oil reserves. Yes. Oh, and they straight up take over vaguely like, Arab oil fields. Yeah. They stop okay. ships in the Gulf of Mexico that are filled with oil. 
presumably that came from Texas. Um, How? They, they are stopping oil from transporting anywhere. How many, how, how many minions mm-hmm. would you have to have to, to, to affect that? Well, how many guys took like how over, many, how many guys took over uh captain? What's his face's ship with, I am the captain now. Right. Okay. There were like four guys with guns that took over that whole ship. Okay. All right. So I mean, you I don't need I, that I, many. I, Okay. And Cobra has, Cobra has a lot of hydrofoils and you know, you and I both know how mobile hydrofoils can be. So, and don't forget, they also have the Cobra submarines. Yeah. Cobra frogmen. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot going on there, you know? Yeah. I'm, there's, there's the ATVs that have forward and rear facing missiles. I mean, you only need like three of those around an oil derrick. Yeah. I, I. Yeah. So anyway, one ninja so many... can take care of all of Alaska. I mean, well, okay, based on the law of conservation of ninjutsu, right? As you long as it's only one ninja, one tank. Remember? At, yeah, as long yeah. as it's only one ninja. Yes. Yeah, the moment Storm you Shadow, have like it. five, if, well, the moment you the moment you go to a team of five ninja, yeah, they're going to get Cobra cut to would never do that. They would never hire out to more than one ninja. It was always only Storm Shadow. That was it. Yeah. All right. He even found Excalibur at one point. Well, no, Footloose found Excalibur, but nice uh, but but Storm Shadow got it Took away it. from him. That's yeah. true. Yeah. No, Storm Shadow found it at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom of the uh, ocean of the lake. It wasn't even a lake; it was the ocean. And then he washes okay. the shore, and he okay. takes it. Footloose gets it from him. Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. So. All right. Anyway, yeah, yeah um, stealing. The world's oil reserves. Okay, uh-huh. Uh-huh. cool. Just controlling, yeah. controlling. You don't have to steal. Yeah. You just have to control. Well, Atreides did say, "He who can destroy a thing has control of a thing." So, right. all right, yeah. I I would just point out that yeah. all they really had to do was march into Iraq, and uh, with Cobra, and they would be graded as liberators, and they would be given the oil. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, uh, Mr. Cheney. Appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Each episode, and you should assume that uh, Cobra is thwarted. Each episode, um. So next, they get they, they get thwarted, and then uh, they try to use the Vulcan machine, which is meant to attack the world cities by, um, bringing lava up from the Earth. Okay, core. yeah, because Vulcan. Yeah, okay, yeah. volcano. Yeah. Um, unless of course, blah, blah, blah control. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's all yeah. pseudoscience. It's all, you know, right. cartoony. Right. It's it either is... tech or supernatural. Yeah. 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 And, and it is that particular kind of super tech that either works really well in the comics or right. you read the comic and you're like, oh my God, this is such shit. Right. Well, and I think that you know. varies based on age. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're six and Iron Man busts out the roller skates, you're like, oh, man, that's some cool shit right there. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Yeah. By the time you're 19, you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. Why is there a nose on his, on his, on his mask? Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, uh, Cobra then works with Dr. Lucifer, um, on a special weapon called High Freak. 
which is a mind control device that takes over all the animals in the world and makes them do Cobra's bidding. So the whales then stop all the oil ships from getting anywhere. The lions mm. take over the oil derricks and Cobra will continue to do that unless blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Turns uh, junkyard against mutt and hunts him down. And it's just, you know, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. There's a Mesoamerican mm. Funhouse episode, uh, which uh, there's a plan by Cobra to invade the Rocky Mountains chemical weapons arsenal, which is fun because sensational journalist Hector Ramirez is doing ride alongs the whole time and he's roasting the G.I. Joes on his TV show, 20 Questions, questioning if Cobra even exists. Okay. Yeah. Um. That's that's obviously a dig at Geraldo Rivera. Yes, it is. Like I remember I, I actually I vaguely remember seeing that and going, Yeah, they're 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 making fun of an actual reporter there. Right. Because at that point, yeah. Geraldo, I think he had done so he had his own TV show. Um, and he had also, and this is all blending together for me because you know it's yeah. childhood, yeah. but he'd also done the vault of Oh God, who's the gangster? Was that Capone? Yes, Al Capone's vault. That's what okay. Yeah, and it was and and he'd gotten his he'd gotten himself smacked. I think that comes like in eighty six, eighty seven. Really? Yeah, Yeah, after Al Capone's vault. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but he'd been on. Was it was it twenty twenty or was it sixty minutes? Oh, you're thinking of John Stossel. Oh, the other mustachioed fellow. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, you know. They did yeah, easy enough easy. similar shit. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. No, I am thinking, I was thinking of, of Stossel, but, but Her- Geraldo was the one who got, who got slapped by, uh, well, yeah, he, he was the one who got, who got smacked by the wrestler when he said something about it being fake. And the guy's no, response no, that was, was John Stossel. That was Stossel. Okay. Yeah. All right. Stossel, because Stossel sues for like 250,000 after getting his eardrum broken by Dr. D. Um, okay. and then, uh, what's his name? Richard Belzer, uh, okay. rest in power. Um, Richard Belzer, uh, was, um, he, he said to Hulk Hogan, I think this is fake too. And Hogan said, it's not, I'll put you in a chokehold. And so he did. And, and Belzer like tried to tap out, but Hogan didn't feel it. <laughs> and, and then, and then Mr. T, you can hear him from the side going, Oh, you slept him. He's sleeping. Um, and so Hogan lets him go and his head just cracks to the ground. Oh shit. And like, he's bleeding off the back of his head and, uh, Hogan like wakes him up and picks him up and he immediately gets back into character. He's like, we'll be right back. No, no, no. And then like, I mean, he's just fucking out of it. <laughs> wow. He sued the WWF and he well, got yeah. $250,000 and he oh, used it to shit. buy a French Rivera Riviera a house like a farmhouse it was a french farmhouse oh and nice he named it shay hogan <laughs> ah. yeah <laughs> okay that's that's awesome yeah so yeah awesome. uh geraldo had a talk show in 86 but he'd done work okay. for 2020 prior to that uh, okay then, yeah. yeah so it was 2020 to... that he, but but it was 2020 yeah. that rivera had been on all right yes yeah he'd also been okay. uh and then yeah he gets his nose broken in 1988 by uh white supremacists who start a fight right uh, yeah it's it's like it's like peak like let's see if we can top morton downey yeah um 
So, Ugh. so yeah, um, Hector Ramirez, um, who actually actually shows up in another cartoon, and I forget which one it is, but Transformers. I don't, I don't know. Yes, yes, I think so because it shows that the they're in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to say it was another one that we had covered in uh, one of the cartoons that should have gotten more episodes, um, but I don't remember. Um, okay. But anyway, uh, Cobra then in another episode steals a top secret nitrogen rocket fuel in another episode. Um, okay. And here's your Crimson Guard guy, right? So the Crimson Guard dressed as a janitor um, steals the top secret uh, nitrogen rocket fuel and uh, he stashes it in a nearby suburban greenhouse, which, of course, the nitrogen in a greenhouse is going to cause all of the produce to grow. Exactly. And it grows to enormous size. And then, uh, like, and there's a state fair, of course. Um, And Destro figures out we can use this and weaponize it. And so, I mean, we're talking, like, giant fist-sized sunflower seeds shooting out and, like, you know, ready to impale people. Nice. And corn exploding and all kinds of stuff. Um, and so they have to figure out how to destroy that. Um, then Cobra creates something called the Ion Attractor, uh, which can okay. pull down the Aurora Borealis in order to melt, melt the polar ice caps and flood the world. And G.I. Joe has to work with a bunch <sighs> of scientists to stop this. I'm okay. I'm a humanities teacher. Uh huh. And and that sentence gave me a headache because there's so much wrong with it, scientifically. Okay, but look at the broader brush. Yeah. I've just mentioned um, animal mind control. Yeah. Okay, so you're dealing with <laughs> sentience of animals. Yeah. I've mentioned bubbling up. Um, yeah, yeah, magma out of the Earth's core. Yeah. From fracking, essentially. Okay, all right. I've just mentioned... Trying to control the world's fuel supplies. Yeah. I've just meant, which, you know, 1973 wasn't that far away. Mm. I've just mentioned, uh, we'll leave aside the Mesoamerican funhouse, which was just really fucking weird. Um, but uh, I, I think, honestly, that was, hey, let's do an Indiana Jones thing, but like okay. plus yeah, arcade from Marvel. Yeah. Um, but I've also just mentioned raunch journalism. Mm-hmm. And then the idea of fake news, so punditry. Okay. Um, GMOs and global warming. Okay. Yeah, global. Okay. But the nitrogen. Were fuel. GMOs? Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I understand thematically how it is, but but was there was a GMO... movement that was starting toward organic. Okay. And so was that reacting right? to pesticides. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, by the way, Yes. I, I had to look it up because I am that kind of nerd and it was driving <laughs> me crazy. So Hector Ramirez. Yes. Uh this is this is on Joepedia. Okay. Online. Yeah. Oh, I spent uh, hours on Joepedia. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Yes, I did. Ramirez is this is this is their commentary. Ramirez is notable for appearing in episodes of G.I. Joe, The Transformers. In that same episode, Dana of the October Guard made a quick cameo. Ah. In humanoids. That's Which I the think one is I was the one thinking. you're thinking of, yep. where he played a major role several times, including getting getting turned into a 15 foot tall living zombie. Yes, and Gem. I did not. Gem and the holograms. The I did yeah. not remember that. Some but viewers I remember can... humanoids because I'd mentioned yeah. that. 
Yeah. Some viewers concluded that this places all four shows in the same universe, a position supported by series writer Buzz Dixon, who yep. describes the character in The Many Faces of Hector Ramirez and adds that he came this close to working My Little Pony in there. Oh. <laughs> Buzz Dixon directed a bulk of not not necessarily the the majority, but a a a, a huge a grip chunk. of yeah. G.I. Joe stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, during the DIC animated G.I. Joe series, a reporter uh-huh. named Jose Riviera bears uh-huh. more than a striking resemblance to Hector Ramirez in both True. looks and personality. The season one episode Injustice and the Cobra Way. Yep. Uh, featured a front page newspaper article written by Riviera, yet credited to Ramirez. The name may have been changed to avoid legal issues with Sunbow. That's entirely possible. But. Yeah. I didn't really get into the public, which that in itself, the the switch over from Sunbow to Deke was actually a really fascinating aspect of it, but it wasn't okay. a part of of this. Yeah. So I'm doing the greatest hits of of all the global issues, right? Yeah. All the shit that yeah. like, okay, and this is stuff that conservatives, Reaganites mm-hmm. are ending up on one side of, right? Yeah, this is all stuff yeah. that Cobra Commander is trying to do in order to control the people, and GI Joe has to use militarism to stop. And these are the backdrops of it. Okay. There's also several nuclear issues, lots of satellite issues. I forgot to mention that one of the satellites uh, with special intel that the Joes and Cobras have to race against each other to find in deepest, darkest Africa, and they find a group of subhumans called, uh, I want to say, hominoids. Um. Mm. And uh, <laughs> they they are they are not coded as people though they are fully furried okay. up and they look like baboons who walk okay and, and like clearly okay. mixed with Neanderthals okay that okay that's less bad than it could have been yeah yeah um I I feel like somebody on in the writing room had read Michael Crichton's Congo yeah yeah not gonna lie could well There's, be like but okay. Yeah, and at the end they're like yo Joe, yo Joe, and they're like carrying well, their clubs and shit. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah. So yeah, all those America. things. Though. Yeah. All right. So, kind of similar to what I said a hundred years ago about the Fantastic Four, about how I think in some ways it is a deliberate satire on the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. I think that having all of these things as a constant backdrop is kind of indicative of. You know, people are not able to clap back that hard against Reagan. I mean, he'd won by this point, he had won his reelection, mm-hmm. um, or he was in the middle of of winning his reelection, uh, yeah. because this is you know September of '84, um, all the way through. Um, yeah. he wins in a huge landslide, like, yeah, he beats Mondale in every state except for Mondale's own state, yeah, and. I think I want to say NDC, but it might have just been Mondale's own state. Yeah, because um, Nixon had won everything except for Massachusetts and D.C. Mondale Mm -hmm. lost everything except for his home state. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a single power wanting to control and hegemony over the world in a time of detente. Through an, yeah. through an increasingly fantastical effort to use technology, science, and force. Okay. So who is that? Well, right? I mean, obviously, it's the USSR. Uh, mm. Is it, though? <laughs> is it? 
<laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> what? I mean, were you asleep what? for the SDI part? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, I was not. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm throwing your own shit right, back at right. you. That's um, and yeah. yet the solution is more military shit. And who is that? So again, yeah. Reaganism versus yeah. Reaganism. And I'm watching it as a child at home alone half the time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, in the Synthoid Conspiracy, parts one and two, the G.I. Joes get infiltrated by smart putty. Um, it's Yeah, I vaguely remember that one. Yeah, and they end up so discredited that the government totally disbands them and surrenders all G.I. Joe aspect, ass, assets to Cobra. But Destro, the arms manufacturer, and Zartan, the espionage mercenary, they both feed information to the disbanded Joes to expose Cobra Commander and return to the much more profitable parity that existed with Cobra and G.I. Joe when they were instated. I'm getting I'm getting vibes of um oh shit. Um I've forgotten the title, but episode eight uh yes. with uh Canto Bite and yes. uh I've forgotten and, and, the actor's name. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, episode the code the code breaker. Yeah. The code breaker. Easy, I think his name was. Yeah. Yeah. Saying saying no, uh these same people are selling to both sides. They don't right. care. Right. You know, there, nobody, nobody else cares about your ideology, but you guys, right. You know, really kind of putting it to Finn of like, why are you choosing a side? Yeah. I really liked episode eight because Finn did choose a side finally too. Mm-hmm. He wasn't just trying to get away. He was actually, yeah. you know, rebel scum. Yeah. Um. But Yeah. In the next episode, Baroness and Cobra Commander threaten, oh boy, uh, they threaten a Romani woman, of course they use a different term, um, mm-hmm. to do vaguely Eastern European crone magic using three physical items to get ghosts of a Mongolian Amazon warrior, a World War One fighter pilot, and a Roman centurion to do their fighting for them. Okay. So, like I said, supernatural shit was the second yeah. highest thing yeah. in the plots, right? Yeah. Um, World War One uh, fighter pilot. Yep. American. American. Yep. Mongolian. Uh, Amazon a, a, warrior. Okay. So yep. so a a woman Mongolian uh-huh. warrior. Uh-huh. Okay. Amazon being the term for that. Because I I immediately thought like Amazon Amazon, but anyway. Nope. No, and, and this is and, their terms, by the way. Okay. Oh, yeah. God, of course. And like then, I said, I said Romani. They didn't. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And yeah. and a Roman centurion. Yes. Okay. All of whom spoke English, of course. Well, like it's a do. it's a kid's cartoon, for Good God's point. sake. So, all right. Of course, Cobra Commander does things wrong. He pisses off the Baroness, who teaches, and because the Baroness is, what, fucking Bavarian? I don't know. She's Eastern European- Eastern German, but Czech. has maybe Czech she has German. ties. She has ties to the mysticism stuff on some level. Yeah. Um. Anyway, she she teaches the Joes to retrieve the items and bury them in order to break the obligate curse. Okay. Um, and a couple of episodes later, Cobra helps a sleazy mayoral politician to smear his opponents for him by using local gang members as a para paramilitary force because. Cobra's a paramilitary force, so this has got to be a para-paramilitary force. Yeah, okay. 
that disrupts the other candidates' meetings. And luckily, G.I. Joe convinces the Latine-coded gang leader to fight for real change. In the next episode, Cobra has developed a molecular disruptor to destroy all currency, making their currency with Cobra Commander's face on it the only acceptable currency by gold. Um, and, I mean, can you get more Reagan than these last four? No, you really can't. You fuck with the, the occult, you do dirty politics, you focus on deflationary monetary policy that only benefits the rich. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you think the writer's room was was like, okay, how can we subvert this as hard as possible without being overt about it? Like, what, how can we? Well, and it's like, okay, no one will catch us because no one's home. Um. And and animation ghetto. Right. And it ends with tanks and shit. Yeah. We're always going to win using military shit, so no one's going to notice, right? Yeah. So now Joan yeah. Quigley was born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1927, and she moved to San Francisco with her father in 1942 uh, when he, a lawyer, bought the Drake Wilshire Hotel, now known as the Taj Campton Place, it was a boutique inn. Quigley went with her sister to high-end private schools in San Francisco, and her family lived on Knob Hill. She was chauffeured to parties in a Rolls Royce, and she and her sister were regularly mentioned in society columns when there were stupid things like that that existed. Um, they were called the Quigley Girls, and they were always showing up to places and stuff. Now, Miss Quigley okay. graduated from Vassar with a degree in art history, and then she apprenticed herself to Jerome Pearson, a soothsayer. Her father disapproved of astrology, but her mother, conveniently named Zelda, was all for it. And as a result, Joan Quigley ended up writing an astrology column for Seventeen magazine. Now, this access having and this exposure also made her a regular on the Merv Griffin show from 1972 to 1985. Uh, okay. And, and as a Republican society person who had media exposure, she met Nancy Reagan around the beginning of that time. <laughs> now you catch me uh, yeah okay <laughs> you're like yeah. who the fuck where the who, fuck why oh, do fuck. we care okay yeah. now i understand yeah now her ties to nancy reagan go back before the gubernatorial run of her husband's and it was rumored that he actually delayed his in his his inauguration in 1967 by nine minutes based on her astrology advice but Reagan denies this regularly, state, or he denied this regularly. He's dead now. Uh, rest in piss. Uh, stating that it was actually to prevent Jerry, or not Jerry, Pat Brown from making any last minute appointments, which that argument doesn't make sense, to be perfectly honest. No, that, that, it yeah. really doesn't. You would want to do okay. it nine minutes earlier, but whatever. Um, so that's questionable. Okay. Yeah. When Reagan began to run for president again in 1980, because this would have been his third time running for president, ladies and gentlemen, do not let people saying no stump your uh, ability to have ambition. Mm. Joan Quigley quickly volunteered to work for his campaign because, quote, he had the most brilliant horoscope I'd ever seen in this country in this century. Yeah. Yeah. Now, after Reagan's Secret Service did their job a little too well, turning a John Hinckley miss into a near kill, Nancy Reagan reached out to Joan Quigley in 1981 and asked if she could have predicted the assassination attempt of a man trying to impress a child actress whom he was stalking. Okay. 
Quickly, Quigley queried her uh, quadrasants and questioned quietly which quasars could quash quintillennial quackery. Remember, Squeaky Fromm tried to kill Ford, who quit being a quadragenarian eight quarters prior, quaintly quelling and quashing queer and queasy feelings which were quaking Nancy's quickening queenly panic. Thank you, V. In other words, Quigley said, yeah, of course I would have if I was looking at my charts. Uh, and then from March of 1981 forward, Nancy Reagan began paying Quigley for her advice on the increasing, or that should have been March of 82. Yeah. Um, but, uh, she, Nancy Reagan quickly began paying Quigley for her advice on increasingly minute details and aspects of Ronald Reagan's life. Reagan knew about this and he told her if it make well, if it makes you happy, you go ahead and do that. <laughs> She so her, yeah, no, no, no. I I want to I want to hear what you're about to say. She paid her. She paid her three thousand dollars a month in 1981 movie money. Fuck you. In 1984, a Toyota Tercel cost about thirty five hundred. Fuck you. In, in today's money, that's ten thousand one hundred forty one dollars and thirty six cents a month. Man, we got into the wrong business. What the hell? So, so yeah, there, there, there are several thoughts competing with each other in my head about all this. They've been overwhelmed by the fuck you, but mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's like okay, you could have if you'd been looking at your charts. Mm -hmm. What the fuck good are you? <laughs> like. Like you, so so you're telling me that you've you've read his chart. You you said he had the most dazzling horoscope of any American this century, or some other horse shit to that effect. You know, part of that chart didn't say anything about oh yeah, somebody's going to try to fucking kill him. Right. Like like really. Right. Like like how convenient. Mm hmm. Um and and so. Like, I mean, I understand how people get sucked in, sucked into woo. Like, I get it. I understand mm -hmm. the psychology behind it. But part of me wants to, you know, dig Nancy up and be like, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. She Number paid one. her the equivalent of $10,000 in today's money. A month. A month to tell the president's wife the relative position of several balls of gas and rock that will influence his policy's success. Which, if you look at criticisms of his economic policies, that actually might have made more sense. It might have. <laughs> like, if we'd found out, oh, no, he was doing all this based on astrology charts. Oh, well, okay, that explains it. Like, like okay, yeah. that's logical. It's one of those long O's. Oh. oh. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and then, you know, part of me is is like, okay, she's paying 10 you know, ten thousand dollars a month in in you know today's twenty twenty so three thousand back then, yeah three three thousand dollars a month in uh -huh. in eighty two money, which is almost money. enough to rent like a studio apartment in San Francisco. Yeah. So. <laughs> and and um, you know, part of me is like, why didn't Ronnie like tell her? Okay, no, look, no, like no. And then the other part of me that, you know, is married, likes uh -huh. being married, is like, well, I can, this is one of those times where I can look at Ronald Reagan and go, yeah, okay, I can identify with that. All right. 
add to that the baggage of his second marriage or his, his first marriage. First marriage, yeah. Add to that, right? So yeah. the frankly abusive relationship that they had. Like she oh, said yeah. that he was uh, mentally cruel. I don't doubt it, to be perfectly yeah. honest, because he was a guy in the 1940s. Yeah. Um, but also, like, well, he had to ask her to marry him under duress. Like, there, there yeah, was a I lot. Mean, oh, yeah, no. It was, that, oh, that it whole... was his, it was, it was Wyman's, like, third marriage, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So Wyman, I think, I genuinely Wyman was think, a character. But, yeah, she was. Yeah. I, I genuinely think his experience as as James Wyman's husband, um, absolutely made him much more willing to do whatever it took to make mommy happy. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think there's something going on there. I, I genuinely do. Also, I think he probably believed in this shit because she Quigley would make phone calls daily, sometimes three times daily, from San Francisco. And she had private direct lines put into the White House and at Camp David. Now, it could still be that this is just to accommodate Nancy. And and I could see that as well. I really could. Yeah. But. But the possibility that he bought into it is pretty. Took his wife's advice all the time. She's his yeah. number one advisor. He is also. We're going to get into this probably in the next episode. His mental faculties are quickly diminishing. Well, and they yeah. might not be diminishing from Alzheimer's. They might actually be diminishing from the fact that he had damn near died. And when you go through bypass surgery and stuff like that, you get what's called pump head syndrome for a while. Okay. Um, very often when you're put under deep anesthesia, it almost activates brain problems. Oh, wow. You're, yeah. Like there's a lot of stuff going on there that I can be okay. sympathetic to. And also say the 25th Amendment was a beautiful thing when it was written and we should have used it. Okay. But Nancy has his ear one way or the other. Yeah. And Joan Quigley's name is largely unknown to much of Reagan's staff. But her influence was very known. Once Nancy's secret was out that she was consulting with Joan Quigley, Nancy actually quit accepting any help from Quigley at all and cut off all contact. So there's something going on there. Anyway, mm. Cobra Commander used spiritual woo-woo stuff, and then Nancy yeah. Reagan, I mean, I mean, Baroness, Baroness. turned yeah. on that once she saw that it wasn't something that she had full control over. Wow. Yeah. Now, when Edmund Muskie was running for the presidential nomination of the Democrats in 1972, he was campaigning in New Hampshire. He was one of the early frontrunners who had a possible chance of defeating Ronald, uh, Richard Nixon. However... The editor of the Manchester Union Leader received a letter from a New Hampshire citizen accusing Muskie of using a racial slur. Um, I don't think we have that many Canadian listeners. We've dropped to like 67th. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm not sure how many of them are French Canadian. So forgive me for using this word Canadian listeners. He used the word Canuck. In New Hampshire, there's a lot of French Canadians uh, who are a significant portion of the voting population. And they don't like that racial slur. Really? Evidently. Okay. Yeah. I I, I know the just woke mob added, came for I, Edwin Muskie. Just I I just had to add a new term to my okay, remember not to use this word. Right. Library. Like yeah. I didn't realize that was okay. Yep. Oh great. Good we to can't know. just say Canuck now. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Okay. All right, fine. Yeah. 
yeah learn so, something new every day all right yeah. so so musky used the c word except he never did the letter was later one that was discovered to be the efforts of a white house aide to president nixon a guy named kenneth clausen Further, there was a character assassination in the works. The editor of that newspaper cited Muskie's wife as being a drunk who joked too much. No evidence there. Muskie was painted as being a soft man because he looked like he was crying in frustration in 72 because it was snowing and the snow was melting on his face. And since New Hampshire is the bellwether state as far as primaries go, his showing there and the troubles that he had there made him far less attractive as a candidate, and he starts trending in the wrong direction. And as a result of his rather flaccid win, Muskie loses, or McGovern rather, uh, picks up steam and picks up the nomination from the Democrats. McGovern is the candidate Nixon wanted in the first place because he was easier to inflame his base against because McGovern was a, was a dove. And Nixon won in a landslide, losing only Massachusetts and D.C. Okay. Now you go back to that episode where a mayoral candidate is running, and it's a pity that Muskie didn't have G.I. Joe. Yeah, it is. Now, now that's Nixon, but Lee Atwater also had a long and storied history along those same lines within the same timeline of popular memory of those who were writing G.I. Joe. Ronald Reagan won the primary in South Carolina by virtue of Atwater's efforts. Lee Atwater planted a false story that Reagan's opponents, note plural and not and and also note the vagueness, were attempting to buy the black vote in South Carolina. Now, this this attack, this misinformation campaign largely centered on John Connolly, who was his strongest opponent in that primary of the Republicans. Okay. Um, this absolutely electrified the defiant Reagan base into supporting him so much harder and stronger that he won the South Carolina primary in 1980 and swept the South. I'm sorry, John Connolly was, was running as, uh, no, no, no. It, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, Connolly yeah. started out as a Republican, but he yeah, wound up he was, running as he an was. independent in the yeah. end. Um, nice job. Uh, I remember so, it from one of my own episodes. Oh, right, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Reagan wins the South Carolina primary and he sweeps the South. And despite the fact that he would go on to lose five more primaries, he was an early lock with that Southern sweep, which was made possible by Cobra funding street toughs to throw eggs and cabbage at the opposing mayor or candidate. Wait, (laughs) reread your notes there. Hold on. I, I, yeah. I, I see. I see what then, of course, there. there's the Reaganomics yeah. aspects, right? Not to yeah. be confused with the 2003 economic philosophy of thugonomics, which purports in a word life type of economy, ec- economic policy, policy in which you cannot see the invisible hand being operated by the one in charge. Okay. But yeah. Reaganomics was marked by a number of really dumb fucking things. But at its center was a tightening of the money supply in order yeah. to reduce inflation, even when people are out of work. Yes. In 1980, the U.S. hit peak inflation and then began deflating throughout until 1986, where it hit its low point of about 2%. At this same time, the purchasing power parity Big Mac index got its start. This is an actual thing. Right. The Big Big Mac index is a way to measure purchasing power parity throughout the world using U.S. currency as a measure of how many Big Macs it could purchase at various McDonald's franchises globally. 
which pins the measure of the currency to the deflated dollar. And it discusses it in terms of how many American made iconographic items it can buy. For fun, you could buy 30 Big Macs in India for $50, whereas in Ukraine and Hong Kong, you could only buy 23 Big Macs. In Pakistan and Lithuania, it would be 17 Big Macs. In the U.S., you could get 11 Big Macs, which means that the U.S. is uh, the U.S. economy's uh, PPP, also known as um, was twice as strong as Ukraine's and nearly thrice as strong as India's. Okay, okay. So again, deflating, getting rid of the entire currency, so that you only have gold with the icon of of Cobra yeah. Commander on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah there were plenty of other episodes that dealt similarly and the solution was almost always the same gi joe tanks planes rifles and soldiers and it took militarism uh in order to defeat dumbass economic policy uh and weird ass spiritual efforts and shitty political efforts those things were always defeated by militarism and then uh, in three episodes in a row, Cobra tried to steal all the gold bars from Fort Knox, attack a sheik's oil supply with a sonic device and cause the oil to leak everywhere, and tried to take over a solar power farm to mess with the power grid. And then a few episodes later, Cobra steals a dangerous bacterium, which turns into a giant germ monster that devours all in its path, which G.I. Joe then defeats by blowing up all the ground around it to guide it toward an apple orchard which this episode actually taught me that apples have a little bit of poison in their seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so literally American apples saved everyone. All right. So deflationary policy check oil spells. Now Exxon Valdez is not going to happen for a few more years, but mm. the Delaware river and Marcus hook saw oil spills in September of 85. Okay. When 435,000 gallons of oil spilled from the Grand Eagle tanker after running aground on the Marcus Hook bar. And a month later, that episode came out. So check. And the bacterial biological warfare side of things. Do you remember Oregon in 1984? No. That's okay. Most people in Oregon don't remember Oregon in 1984. Um, largely because the population is younger. Uh, but recall that in 1984, the Rajneesh cult, we now call it Osho, tried like hell to incapacitate the people of Dallas, Oregon, D-A-L-L-E-S. So I don't I want to say it's Dallas. Dallas, Oregon, by deliberately contaminating salad bars with salmonella. Their goal was to win the upcoming Wasco County elections in 1984 so that they could get political control over the county's commission and the sheriff's department in order to get building permits granted for their commune. They'd already done this in Antelope, Oregon, where the population was only about 75 people, but the Rajneeshi had brought in lots of homeless folks with the intention of inflating their side of the vote, and the poisoning would deflate the oppositions. It didn't work, and while dozens were sick and a few hospitalized, nobody died. Mm-hmm. And it cannot be ignored that this was a grotesque representation of, you know, the germ war that, that mm-hmm. uh, Cobra's using of the rainbow herbicides that the U.S. used in Vietnam during the war. In okay. many ways, this is a refantasization uh, effort to reskin something that the U.S. had done, dropping defoliants on a population. And it showed the U.S. as the hero when it comes to bioterrorism instead of the agent. 
Okay. Yo, Joe. I can I can see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Reframing. Anyway, there's also an episode where Cobra threatens to cause an earthquake that'll ruin Tokyo. This episode comes roughly a year after the 1984 Nagano earthquake, which was the deadliest earthquake of 1984. <clears throat> and okay. there's a there's a two part episode uh, s- series where Cobra kidnaps and brainwashes the family members of a bunch of GI Joes to retrieve really unstable explosive crystals. Okay. Uh, in 1984, there was a book released that was an effort to debunk the idea of brainwashing, and there were plenty of claims all around the world that cults were brainwashing people, not the least of which were the Unification Church, commonly referred to as Moonies. Mm-hmm. In 1983, the American Psychological Association created a group called the APA Task Force on Deceptive and Indirect Techniques of Persuasion and Control, or DIMPAC, to look into cults and brainwashing, as that was big in the zeitgeist at the time. I mean, it's very, not quicksand, but it's pretty close. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, now, that report won't get released until 86, so its results certainly didn't impact the writers of these episodes. And in 87, the DIMPAC came back saying essentially that they couldn't ethically take a stand. But keep in mind that just over a decade prior to this, these writers would have been watching A Clockwork Orange, which features brainwashing as a central plot point. Mm-hmm. Given the amount of creative energy that went into quicksand as a plot device in the 50s and 60s, one could say that the brain stuff was a similar import to 70s and 80s fictions. The brain is so powerful from psychokinesis to brainwashing, and it's a lot to play with in terms of plot devices. And they do it again in an episode where Cobra has built a model and a company town, and they're using TV to brainwash everyone in town, which Flint figures out, of course, when he goes to visit his cousin, Uh, The newscast is perpetually brainwashing the denizens of that town because reasons, and it nearly leads to domestic abuse, brainwashing and girlfriend beating all in one. And all of this is on a cartoon for children after school. And this brings me to the latter half of the first season. This cartoon didn't spare any part of Reaganism as a problem. In addition to the rampant capitalistic evil villainous plots, the cult of personality leadership of Cobra Commander and the cronyism, Destro is an arms manufacturer who works alongside Cobra and has an uneasy friendship with Cobra Commander, as well as a romantic one with Baroness, Cobra is also a union buster. Uh, okay. Yeah. In the, uh, in the episode, when they uh, figure out how to create dinosaurs again, by like de-evolving birds. Okay. Um, the Crimson Guard literally refused to work, saying that they're union and that they're on break. But then they're physically intimidated back to work by the arms manufacturer, Destro. And a few episodes later, which I'm just like, okay, he's clearly a villain. Like that's Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. If you, you know. didn't think so before. Right. Now that's a that's a bridge, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> exactly. Like, now, a few episodes like, later when <laughs> like trying to monopolize the world oil supply yeah trying to create super cyclones death weather you know Smart volcanoes putty. under major cities right like that that's that's certainly sketchy but right. the moment you go union busting yeah you're, they, they earned damnation. a 15 minute break yeah there you go god damn right. right yeah and again i would point out that cobra is the one that actually provides masks to its employees so yeah, well yeah and a rec room, by the way. And and healthcare in a rec room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a few episodes later, when <laughs> Cobra decides that the best way to take over the world is through heavy metal music, Cold Slither, 
uh, with Zartan yeah. as their frontman, uh, using subliminal messaging in their music. They're filming yeah. a music video. Someone tries to stop the recording because the union workers need their break, and they get beaten down by Cobra Commander. Oh, Cobra Commander is the one who actually delivers the... Uh... Grabs the union guy, hurls him across. Wow. Yeah. And more on the heavy metal episode in a minute. But first, okay. G.I. Joe delves into an alternative dystopian timeline. The days of future past has already come and gone at Marvel in 1981, but G.I. Yeah. Joe was trying its hand as well in this two-parter called Worlds Without End. There's a glowy purple beam device that sent a bunch of Joes into an alternate reality where Cobra had defeated the Joes. And it turns out that the Baroness is actually a double agent and in love with Steeler, who you never really met prior to this point. Yeah. Uh, heretofore barely mentioned, um, who ends up suffering from a fever for a while. Uh, he also finds the corpses of his alternate universe self, uh, Clutch and Grunt, and he wigs out a bit. Uh, eventually, Baroness uh, helps start a civil war between Destro and Cobra Commander, and the rest of the Joes escape back uh, into okay. reality. But Steeler, Clutch, and Grunt all stay behind in the other reality which is a convenient way to discontinue their action figures, which weren't really all that interesting to begin with. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Now wow. you're, you're a huge fan of Buckaroo Banzai. Is yeah, I am entirely about this very thing. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. But I'm a, so I'm going to leave that for you as a topic that seems more up your alley. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. But suffice to say the idea of a parallel and alternate realities is much more than a fringe idea at this point in fiction. In another episode, Dusty pretends to be a traitor so that he can be a triple agent. Uh, so you get into that kind of spy shit yeah. going mm -hmm. on. The problem Cold is that, again. yeah, the problem though is that Duke ends in another of his comas, um, and he's the only one that knew. Interestingly, Cobra Commander actually quotes Joseph Stalin while talking to Dusty, <laughs> um, because Dusty's like, you know, don't you trust me? Uh, and Cobra Commander says. Uh, uh, says, quote, as Stalin said, don't trust anyone, not even yourself. Okay. Also in this episode, there's a mention of the Owsley mind control chemical. Okay. Now, for those that don't know, uh, that's LSD. MK oh, Ultra shit. Okay. In the 1950s, the CIA was experimenting with the use of LSD to see if they could find some sort of way to enact mind control uh, and create sleeper agents and brainwash people. And this came after Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke were discontinued. Okay. MK Ultra involved plenty of willing volunteers, but no good science at all. Like there wasn't a controlled environment, no real kind of like reporting that scientists would have done, uh, no real accountability, uh, um, uh, no replicability of those results. Oh, yeah, no, um, it was a shit show. Yeah, and it was made known to the public by the Rockefeller Commission in 75 and a 77 FOIA request that brought to light over 20,000 documents that had previously been classified. And again, that's about eight years before Owsley mind control was even mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, right? right. I'm eight years old at uh, this time. Now, the tie-in is the LSD. Owsley Stanley was called the King of Acid, and between 65 and 67, he was the first and most prolific private producer of LSD on a massive scale. He was responsible for roughly 5 million doses that were made available to the public. Yeah. 
the Heisenberg of acid. Yes. And the thing is, he was able to do so largely as a runoff from the MK Ultra efforts. Okay. Anyway, um, Dusty uh, convinces Cobra Commander to use the new armor treatment on all of Cobra's gear. And the the thing is, though, that the Joes figured out that uh, when the treatment gets heated up a lot, it disintegrates everything it touches. And Duke came out of his coma and everything was saved. Okay. In the Wrong Stuff episode, Cobra captures yet another satellite and they set up a TV station mm. on a space station that ran its own TV network to propagandize everyone. Okay. At its core, Cobra's plan here for world domination is 24-hour news cycle punditry. What? Mm-hmm. Okay. CNN started when? uh 88 okay but this is like super part of yeah i think so because it's a turner thing and turner really gets the superstation going in like 87 i want to say i might be off by a few but all right this is partisan propaganda not just 24-hour news not just boring ass news okay all right this is News that's designed to activate your fear. This is news that is going to cast everything in a certain light. This is going to have a kid's cartoon on their news network that's about zero diversity and how conformity is the goal and diversity is bad. And that's for the kids. And Cobra Commander actually does the globe dance from the great dictator in this episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now here, this will give you a clue as to what network I'm really talking about. Cobra Commander appeals to free speech and asks for money to continue staying on the air in order to protect his free speech. Okay. Yeah. And here's the thing. Yeah. This cartoon is not reflective. It's predictive. Yeah, it really is. Also, yeah. I because again I I had to look it up. Sure. Uh, CNN launched at 5 p.m. Eastern time on June 1st, 1980. Oh shit! I was off. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. So um, it's absolutely prescient with its spot-on depiction of punditry. Yeah. Roger Ailes, Rupert Murdoch, and the toxic 24-hour cycle. Yeah. It predicted so much about the values of such a network and its potential danger. Luckily, the might of G.I. Joe's Space Force is able to derail his plans, despite Ace getting shot down, I think, three times in this episode. Um, And come to think of it, for a man named Ace, there's not a single episode, and I checked, that he doesn't get shot down in. Well, you know, it could just be that he's he's related to John McCain. (laughs) It's entirely possible. I, you know. Yeah. I feel a little bad saying that as the oh, son of aviator, but you know, how many times did the guy crash? Multiple. And yeah. he like straight up was like, like Hey, three. my dad's an admiral. <laughs> yeah. So I will yeah. say this. McCain did deal with a lot of torture and he yes. came out fully against torture. That's like the yeah. one way that he stayed consistent that I agreed yeah. with. The rest of it was a lot of image management. But yeah. Anyway, that is the end of season one. And I think that's a good place to break off. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you gleaned in this trip through season Ah. one of a cartoon that you should be grateful you didn't have to watch? Yeah. (laughs) That um, William Gibson 
had a had a great line in uh in the i want to say it was a, a, a forward he wrote and it might have been for a collection of his own work but mm-hmm. um he talked about science fiction writers uh having the role of being the court jesters mm. of of literature that because the the not being taken seriously is a double-edged sword that because you're not taken seriously you can play with ideas and concepts that quote unquote serious literature can't do anything with mm. like if a, if a if a serious quote unquote literary writer were to touch on a certain issue uh or or to try to say something with a certain issue there would be you know it's 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 a third rail kind of effect but a science fiction author can go in and say oh well you know i'm writing this story that you know very clearly is an allegory about whatever this issue is or about this thing. And I'm going to take it to 11 mm-hmm. and I can do that because, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a high tech fairy story. It's not, you know, it's not real. Sure. And I feel like the same thing is happening with, with everything you're saying here with the GI Joe series that, all of these issues are are coming up in these literally cartoony ways, right? But they're they're bringing all of this stuff up in this way that a live action TV show would not have been able to get away with, or or mm-hmm. would have you know people would have looked at it and gone well. Okay, no, that's just ridiculous. But because this is a cartoon, well, of course it's ridiculous. It's a cartoon. Right. But they're not wrong. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I have in said fact, a couple of times. The fact, oh, that they're, the fact that they're right is a stunning indictment of where we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would, I would, I would not disagree with that at all. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think the the court jester effect mm-hmm. uh of in this case the animation ghetto um is definitely present and and very much a thing. Cause that's that's something that I've kind of been shaking my head about the whole time. Sure. Hearing all of this. Yeah. That works. So um what you uh what you recommending? Um, let's see. What am I recommending? I'm going to very strongly recommend, um, strange days, the film strange days from 1990. I don't remember what, Mm -hmm. um, that is, uh, again, it's homework for the upcoming cyberpunk episode. It is one of a very few live action, truly cyberpunk films um it is not it is not visually anything like blade runner okay but it brings up some ideas that are intensely cyberpunk uh the the interaction between individuals and technology the uh epistemological issues that come up of you know what is real Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and to an extent, not so much what does it mean to be human, which is frequently in cyberpunk, but in in strange days, it's a bit more of 
uh, how genuine are our experiences? Oh, okay. How, you know, where, where do we draw the line between a real experience and a fake one? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, if, if we have technology where you can record events from your own point of view and somebody else can put on a device and experience that thing from your point of view, is that a real experience for them or is it not? I like, you know, um, and I'm blanking right now on the lead actor's name, but Angela Bassett's in it. She's amazing. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a it's a great movie. Okay. Uh, very highly recommended and a really good example of cinematic cyberpunk. And nice. so strongly recommend that. Okay. How about you? Uh, I'm going to make two part of recommendation. Uh, first of all, if you have access to GI Joe, the comic book, the original, yeah. read issue 21. It's called silent interlude. Oh yeah. It's groundbreaking. Um, oh. and of course, it comes about, uh, in, in the way that so many great things come about, uh, through sheer dumb fucking luck. Um, essentially, <laughs> they ran out of time, and they're like, just make it a silent issue. Uh, so it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, the other one I'm going to bring up is by James Asmus, A-S-M-U-S. Um, it's called Survival Street. It just popped out as of, you know, by the time this, this hits the air, it just mm. popped out. It's called Survival Street. And essentially, um, it is, uh, how to put, um, the the country is completely taken over by corporate America. Um, everything's deregulated and and it's feudal shit with with mm. uh, you know billionaires running things. Um, but uh, that means the PBS is gone. Um, but uh, there's a group of people who are kind of like the A team um, and teaching kids to survive this. And it's the Muppets. Turns out they were all real. They were not hand puppets. And uh, it's it's meant to be satire. That's trippy. Oh, it's great. Okay. It's fantastic. Okay. And you get into like all kinds of really cool ethical shit of like, well, if it's a corporation and it's an entity, that means we can try it. And I say, oh, yes, you can. But it needs to be tried as a minor because this corporation is only 12 years old. Uh and and uh there's like there's some humans there's mm -hmm. like a lavar burton type character in it um and he is leading the rebels nice. uh and he's still a pacifist and it's weird but you also have like literally the muppets teaching kids how to make bombs and form resistance squads and stuff like that it's fantastic um here's here's the funny part um Ted Cruz picked a fight with Big Bird in the last year or so over vaccinations. Yeah. So no matter yeah. how absurd our <laughs> satire gets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we go back to G.I. Joe, no matter how fucking absurd that is. Yeah. Shit was happening in real time. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to control these ghosts using astrology. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So um, just, just proven, like, maybe satire has a shelf life of that day. Like, we used to say it had a yeah, shelf life of half yeah. a generation. 
Maybe it's not just even, the day. Not even. So, so. you bringing up mm-hmm. corporate feudalism. Um, I, I actually have another recommendation I have to make off okay. the piggybacking off of that. Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Oh, okay. Uh, published in 1992. Um, it is another... Uh, classic of the genre um and it takes place in an america where um corporate entities have literally balkanized the country so you you will live in an area that operates under the law as written by uh uh a Exxon pizza delivery chain right. right uh so cool yeah this sounds like the the guiding principle behind uh shadow run uh yeah, it's yep. it's definitely it's definitely there. It's I mean they're 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 coming at a very similar place. Very cool. So yeah. Cool. So there we go. Awesome. Well, uh you want people to be able to find you at all or are you hermited up? Um I'm hermiting up Good for, for now. You. Uh we can be found uh collectively at uh wubba 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 dot geekhistoryoftime.com mm-hmm. uh and on Twitter uh, as long as that uh, shibboleth, uh, not not that that shambling beast, uh, it's our come around. Um, as long as that continues to shamble, we can be found there as uh, Geek History Time on on the Twitter. And how about you? What do you got going on? Where can uh, you be found? You can find me. Uh, let's see. As of this recording, maybe it's in time for the May fifth show. You should go see the May fifth show of capital punishment uh at luna's ten dollars proof of vax it's gonna be an awesome freaking show uh if you missed that then there's the june 2nd show same time same place 8 p.m luna's in sacramento bring proof of vax to either show uh we probably are going to be providing masks but feel free to bring your own uh Mm. bring money uh to buy food uh art makes really good smoothies they are delicious uh it's getting to be warm enough to enjoy them and uh bring some money for some merch so All there right. you go yeah well for a geek history of time i'm damien harmony and i'm ed blaylock and until next time Yo knowing is half the Joe. battle oh that's no, it. the end of the episode oh, knowing okay. is half the battle there we go all right now we know yeah, I and yeah right I'm anyway fucking worse